Hi, Leadership Under Fire podcast listeners. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Today, we have a very important guest on the show. His name is Jason Bresler. Jason is the founder and president of Leadership Under Fire, or LUF. So in this episode, we'll get to share how Leadership Under Fire came to be and how the LUF endeavor has evolved over time. We'll also learn how Jason's personal experiences have influenced his views on how to develop leaders and optimize human performance. Jason serves as an FDNY Special Operations Firefighter and Rescue Company 2 in Brooklyn, New York. Prior to becoming a firefighter and creating the Leadership Under Fire team, Jason began his career as an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's led Marines on several deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan where he was decorated for his combat service. Jason holds a master's degree from Oklahoma State University. He completed his undergraduate degree at the United States Naval Academy, where he also played Division I baseball for the midshipmen. Jason, welcome. So before we dive in to the origin of Leadership Under Fire, I wanted to first fast forward on the timeline a bit to when we first met. In 2016, the FDNY Bureau of Training rolled out the Mental Performance Initiative, or MPI, and I was tasked with covering the initiative for the department, and what I learned is that you were given an opportunity to spearhead this effort. Um, I want to pause for a minute and acknowledge how far you and I have come since that time, we had to cultivate some trust in the beginning. <laughs> sure, absolutely. There was a, there was a little friction early, uh, early interaction. So can you share with our listeners how MPI came to fruition? Sure. Probably some of the FDNY's mental performance initiative has roots in sport as well as uh, on the battlefield. Early in my career with the FDNY, on two separate occasions, I took a leave of absence, went abroad uh, to lead Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, on both occasions, I was really sh- struck by how critical the mental aspect of, of performance is in, in combat operations. And that, that's certainly consistent with what history tells us about combat. But when I came back to the fire department and I was trying to make sense of my, of my combat experiences and reflecting on the things that we did well, the things that we did uh, relatively well and the things that we, we, we did very, very poorly – trying to facilitate some sort of, of learning. I had transitioned and was going to fires on, on, in emergencies on a somewhat frequent basis, and I, I was really struck by how little attention the, the fire department, not just the FDNY, but the larger American fire service, gives to kind of the, the physiological and psychological aspects of performance. And I started to have a number of conversations with, with folks that I hold in super high regard and I would ask them how important is the mental aspect of, of performance. And every single individual that I posed this or framed this question to told me the same thing. It's, it is the most important thing. And I would generally follow that question, well, well, if it's so important, then where can I find it, right? Where can I find it in our training curriculum? Where can I find it in our literature? Where can I find it in our promotional process? Where can I find it uh, in our training and, and development? And many folks said, well, it's just one of those things that comes with experience, Many of these guys were warriors, guys that had been to thousands of fires, the 70s and into the 80s. And, you know, obviously folks from my generation probably aren't going to see that operational activity. And I wasn't satisfied with having to wait 25 years to kind of have a good understanding of how we function upstairs at, at fires and emergencies. During that same time, I met uh, a gentleman by the name of Eric Nuremberg, who's now a chief officer in Iowa. Eric's a former Marine, was a competitive wrestler. And he was pursuing advanced study in support of his career as a chief officer in, in Iowa. And he had kind of come to the same realization that the American Fire Service 
really had neglected this aspect of, of performance or wasn't given it nearly as much attention. Around that same time, I was immersed in the FDMY's bulletins and, and studying for the lieutenant's test. And the bulletins consist of hundreds, probably thousands of pages worth of information about how our physical environment, fire, buildings, structural components, the city's infrastructure and our equipment behave under stress. And consequently, what tactics and techniques are best in order to allow us to save lives and property while enhancing our own safety. And uh, these bulletins also, they not only shape our operational approach, but they, uh, the information forms the basis for our promotional test at virtually every level. And one of the things that really struck me was that there was absolutely zero attention in those books, as, as good as they are and as thorough as they are, to the most critical resource at fires and emergencies, us, and more specifically, the, the mental aspect. And had a few opportunities to kind of explore this deficiency or discrepancy with our senior leadership. And to their credit, after exploring it, they recognized that there was a discrepancy or or, um, deficiency. There was an opportunity to address this. And that, in a sense, is the genesis behind the FDMI's Mental Performance Initiative. So how do you feel about where the initiative is at this moment and the trajectory of it? Yeah, so we formally launched the initiative nearly three years ago in somewhat atypical fashion. We recognize that, you know, we have a really, really talented workforce, a lot of really, really smart folks, but we didn't have too many folks in our ranks of 12,000 plus that were well-versed on human performance, namely the, the mental aspect. So what we did is we created a week-long curriculum, the Mental Performance Leaders course, and we bring folks in from pro sport, military special operations, academia who are subject matter experts, particularly in the academic sense, or practitioners that are really thought leaders as it relates to human performance in high-risk and highly competitive industries. Recognizing that, you know, how they seek to optimize performance in pro baseball, you know, that approach couldn't be copy and pasted into what we do as a New York City Fire Department in the same way that what the Navy SEALs do in in Coronado and at Damneck couldn't necessarily be copied and pasted. But at its core, that approach, a lot of those concepts and best practices certainly lend relevance to what we're doing and the environment in which our folks operate in. And the initiative has been very, very well received, certainly much to my and I think the team's satisfaction. And one of the interesting things is, is about it is it's been very well received by both junior and senior members alike. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when we think about organizational change, when it seeks to enhance our performance, which I think everyone is committed to, there's also sometimes friction points and, and resistance because it's something that's new. And in many ways, at the individual level, what we're seeking to do isn't novel, right? These are things that the greats historically had, had really valued. Maybe they didn't have the language or the scientific understanding to reinforce it, but it's certainly things that they had um, viewed as important, but kind of taking an organizational approach. You know, like we say, like intuitively, we know being composed when standing in front of a fire building or operating on the floor above is, is critical. The question then becomes, what are we doing institutionally to reinforce that sense of calm, composure, decisiveness? What are we doing organizationally? And then one of the, probably the things that's been the greatest surprise for me is I would have assumed that the most senior and seasoned folks that we have would be most resistant to this initiative. And conversely, what I found is that they were actually the most open-minded. Those folks who have been to the most fires and in many, many instances are the best at what they do because of the, the experience that they possess, are also the guys who have been humbled the most. And what we found is that those folks who have been humbled on a number of different occasions just because our operational environment is, is so complex are also the folks that have found this information, this knowledge, some of the science uh, r- really invaluable 
because it kind of helps to maybe offer explanation, right? In instances where their performance wasn't to the um, to the level that they had hoped, or maybe they behaved in a way that wasn't consistent with how they anticipated they might behave. It just helps them to kind of make sense of things, which then facilitates learning right. and uh, optimizes their performance going forward. And I think we've always recognized that a well-trained fireman and fire officer is central to operational success, but we've never really worked to humanize that narrative. That's really what this in- initiative allows us to do. And I, I think folks are-, are excited about that. Yeah, lots of potential. And like you said, an opportunity, but it's still in its infancy. So Yeah, and that's the thing. I-, I have to manage expectations. It's a strategic initiative, strategic, right? Five, 10, 15 year roadmap. In some ways, our historical understanding of how we function under stress is, is-, is based on false assumptions or myth, or more recently, maybe even more junk science. And I think it's going to kind of take a while for us to be able to establish that scientific foundation that truly informs us on how we function under stress. Okay, so now I want to go back to 2012, when you founded Leadership Under Fire. What was the genesis of LUF? So the genesis of LUF actually dates back to 2006 or seven. So in 2006, I took a military leave of absence from the fire department, from, from the job, and I deployed to Fallujah, Iraq with a team of Marines. Uh, there were roughly nine or ten of us. All of us were reservists coming from very different backgrounds professionally as civilians. We deployed to Fallujah at the height of the insurgency there. The daily levels of violence are at an all-time high. And quite frankly, it pains me to say this as a Marine, but the Marines weren't winning. Uh, we, we were losing it, and we were losing pretty badly. My small team of Marines, we were assigned an infantry battalion, roughly a, a unit the size of 1,000, 1,100 infantry Marines. And our explicit mission was to drive a wedge between the local Iraqis and the, the local Iraqi sheikhs who had been quite disenfranchised with us and al-Qaeda's foreign fighters who were coming from places all around the globe, highly trained and, and fervent Suicide bombers, snipers, bomb makers, uh, you, you, you name it. And th- those two elements, the locals and the foreign terrorists, had formed an incredibly lethal tag team. My Marines and I only had a few weeks to, to train. We largely focused on the tactical, the technical, how we were going to move, um, how we were going to communicate, uh, how we were going to respond to IEDs and the sniper fire and, and such. We got to Fallujah, you know, going in, we, we were collectively committed to this mission, right, of, of stabilizing the city, partnering with the locals, and very quickly, the lethality of the environment and the lethality of, of the fight started to erode that commitment to the mission, and in some instances, the mission became, uh, you know, one of us taking care of, of ourselves, which is certainly important, but the problem is that's not the mission, right? That's not the explicit mission. And... I, it, it somewhat pains me to admit this, but I became more risk averse than I probably traditionally am or than I should have been in that environment given the mission that was tasked to me. Not because we didn't want to win, but because we didn't understand the nature of the conflict. And on a particularly really freaking hot day uh, in Iraq, my team and I were blessed to meet Chief Officer 5, James Roussel, perhaps the wisest combat leader I've ever met. And his tutelage was invaluable to not only me, but to my team. Jim taught us to think in a way about complex problem sets in a way that no one has ever or previously and probably has ever since taught us to think. Had anybody said anything about thinking prior to this? They certainly didn't frame it in the way that Jim did. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways he would take something that was inordinately complex and reduce it to something that was very simple. And he said, look, here's the deal. D- this fight is about 
There's good bad guys and there's bad bad guys. On the surface right now, they all look bad because they're targeting us. But the bottom line is uh, there's good bad guys and there's bad bad guys. And what we need to do is we ultimately we need to partner with the good bad guys right, and empower them to fight the bad bad guys. That's how we're going to win in this environment. But the problem is we don't know who is who. So we're going to have to work through a, a, a season here where we're going to first identify who is who, who might be able to leverage, who might be able to influence. Jim said, look, this process is dangerous. It's it's messy. It, it's gray. It's it's all of that and, and more. And it's uncomfortable. And this is it's particularly uncomfortable. This is the first time you've embarked on something like this. And I had virtually no formal training or education in doing this. And thank goodness that I was able to function and, and learn it under Jim's tutelage. And to a large extent, we were successful by the time we had left at the end of this seventh, eighth month deployment. The levels of violence were at all-time low as opposed to being at an all-time high, and the Iraqis were on their way to enjoying stability and to some extent even, even prosperity. So we returned home from that deployment and kind of left their own devices or probably just inclined to kind of metaphorically box it up right, and, and maybe revisit it on the occasion of a reunion or an anniversary or just kind of like box up the experience, put it in the attic or put it on the top shelf of the closet and just revisit it on occasion. And as I transitioned back into the fire department and going to fires and emergencies on a, on a somewhat frequent basis, I was really struck by the similarities of the two environments, particularly when you think about not only the risk, right, but the uncertainty, the human dimension, the unpredictability sometimes. And I just thought maybe there was an opportunity to take some of those lessons that we had learned under fire in the world's most lethal and unforgiving city and apply them to life here at, at home and to kind of take lessons about mission-oriented leadership, human performance, operational tempo, mental agility, the moral imperative risk and, and resilience and organize them in such fashion that we could translate or convey those lessons to other leaders in other highly competitive and uh, high-risk endeavors. So when you first stood up Leadership Under Fire, what did that look like? You had an event or you were publishing content? What did Leadership Under Fire look like originally? So this was in 2007 and I ended up getting busy with another deployment and kind of grad school and, and, and life with the New York City Fire Department. It, it took a few years. We had already shaped the concept myself, one of my Marines, Sergeant Bill Kerr, who was tragically killed in Afghanistan in 2009. We kind of built our foundation around what we wanted Leadership Under Fire to be. And what we wanted to do, we just didn't really know the specifics yet. So in 2012, I gathered up a, a group of um, folks that I respect and said, hey, maybe we uh, formalize this concept. So we decided that our first event would be a uh, somewhat of a tactical seminar for largely for firefighters. We hosted an event in Philadelphia in 2012 and probably for the first few years of Leadership Under Fire, much of our focus and met nearly all of our events and programs were exclusively focused on the tactics mm -hmm. and techniques associated with firefighting. So what is the Leadership Under Fire philosophy, and then how does this support all of your endeavors? So the philosophy also finds its roots in Fallujah. Because when I deployed into Fallujah in 2006, Marine captain, several deployments, uh, you know, competent and confident about my abilities, but walking into an environment that I didn't understand, and then being assigned a mission that was certainly unfamiliar to me, if you had said to me, hey, what three things do you think it will take to decisively win in an environment against an adversary that's as capable and as lethal as this adversary, I would have probably said our tactics, our equipment slash weapons, and to some extent technology, right? putting all of that together to decisively win an armed conflict. On the back end of that deployment, having navigated the complexities, having studied under the tutelage of Jim Roussel, 
who we affectionately refer to as the Grand Ayatollah, uh, because he's all things, all things <laughs> wisdom, never to his face. But um, you had said, what three things did it actually take t- to to win? The list would have been fundamentally different. I would have said collective will, mindset, and relationships. And I think that thinking is really at the core of the leadership under fire philosophy. Now, our explicit mission as an organization, as a team, is to help prepare leaders and organizations to navigate the physical, mental, emotional, intellectual, and moral rigors associated with leadership and performance in high-risk settings and highly competitive endeavors. And I think what's significant about that is oftentimes, I think what makes the distinction between good and great leaders or good and great organizations, whether it be in the emergency responder community, whether it be in the military, whether it be in sport, is that the good organizations spend a lot of time and devote a lot of resources to the tactics, the techniques, the fundamentals, the, the physical. The great organizations also spend a significant amount of time exploring the mental, emotional, and most significantly, the, the moral aspects of performance. And I think as a team, uh, when I look at the caliber of folks on the team, I, I think that's um, at the core of our philosophy and our approach to helping leaders to prepare. You use two key words there, explore and team. How do you select the subject matter experts who contribute to leadership under fire? How do I select? Uh, you didn't have a choice with me. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, so, sometimes, sometimes talent prevails, and then, uh, that's certainly the case with, uh, with you, Patty. Um, so I'm probably going to sound like President Trump when I say this, but I love winners. And I love leaders who have attained considerable success in their highly competitive industries, particularly when those industries revolve around physical risk or even more significantly physical risk that's for the greater good of society. But I'll add this as my caveat to the I love winners criteria. It's that I love winners who have played the game enough that they also know firsthand what it's like to play to win and lose. And these are leaders who have lost Tactically, many have lost physically, and most significantly, they've also lost emotionally somewhere along the way. And some of those losses could have easily been justified in exit. And in some instances, folks in the arena, whether it be their superiors or colleagues, wanted them tossed for their suboptimal performance or the catastrophic outcomes. But instead of being victims of their failure, these leaders became seasoned survivors who were not defined by a single defeat or an epic win, but by the journey. And it's how they learned how to handle failure that is even more significant than how they process their victories. And when I think back to our nation's history, particularly in a military context or world history in a military context, I thank God that historic military leaders like Admiral Jim Stockdale, the late John McCain, and Winston Churchill endured their failures. And these types of resilient leaders are not just limited to the, to the military. They virtually reside in every industry and endeavor. When I think of the fire service, I think of men like Nick Colt and Brendan Cawley. You know, Brendan's one of our own. And I think of athletes. When I think of athletes, I think of women like Lindsey Vaughn. This played to win and lost, but still playing the win story is powerful because it's the product of courage, uh, humility, and learning. So that's one of my criteria. I also require that the leaders we select to contribute are firm in their convictions, but open-minded. But to some extent, it's, a, it's almost an unnecessary criteria because you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who is an optimal performer in a complex endeavor and possesses a fixed mindset. One final criteria is that the leaders who contribute and the performers who contribute are quiet professionals. And what I mean by that is this. I, 
You know, we, we all know folks who are good at what they do or sometimes think they're good at what they do, and they spend a lot of time chirping about it on social media and teach their own. But I, I'm of the belief that if you've got enough time to hold court on social media or, you know, hold court about your competitive endeavor, that you're either overcompensating or should maybe take your game to the next level competitively. Um, so those would be my criteria, right? Somebody who, who loves to play to win uh, is no stranger to having lost, right? And then that shaped them. Somebody who's firm in their convictions, right? A person of character and integrity, but they're open-minded. And somebody who is a who's a quiet professional. Their actions speak volumes. So dialing it back into you, you have firsthand experience in high-risk, ultra-competitive field, obviously firefighting, military, and sport. What drove you into these fields, and why did you take on the roles that you did? Yeah, probably my father, uh, a man who I have the greatest admiration and appreciation for. My father was a professional firefighter, fire officer, fire chief. He loved firefighting, and he also loved the game of baseball. And since my earliest recollection of, of a child, I too have loved have loved both of those things, you know, f- firefighting and baseball. And at a somewhat early age, I was I was drawn to the military. I think because of the the mission, the challenges associated with it, the structure, uh, specifically the Marines. And by the time I got to high school, I was decent enough that I thought I could play baseball in, in, in college. Probably not professionally, though I would have loved to, but I, I recognize I was probably decent enough to play. In, in, what uh, position? In, I was a middle infielder in, initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the opportunity to go to college, and I, I started to get recruited. I, I like school. Right? Uh, I love baseball. And I thought, hey, maybe someday I'll, I'll get to lead Marines or maybe someday I'll even get to be a firefighter. And uh, I was really fortunate enough to get accepted to the Naval Academy where I got to play baseball. I got a fantastic education. It set me on a path to lead Marines and around the world in ways that I never imagined or anticipated. I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. Congratulations. Yeah. No, that, that's like a credit to my, to my parents, right? Because at the time, I, I probably didn't realize how significant that was, the opportunity mm-hmm. to go away and go to school on a full-time basis. I mean, years later, that significance isn't lost on me, and I, I really credit that to my parents get all the credit for that, or much of the credit for that, and my coaches. But So I'll have to go to the Naval Academy with, with aspirations of being a pilot. But as fate would have it, I took a ball to the face. Uh, retinal detachment, the dream of, uh, of, of flying as an aviator was no more. But I was still fortunate enough to graduate, lead Marines in combat abroad, and become a New York City firefighter. So in many ways, um, yeah, I wouldn't change what I'm doing for, for the world. So I, I don't know if I'm thankful that I got hit in the face, but it, it certainly uh, has allowed me to enjoy everything I've gotten to do professionally. It's nice to hear that you have that support system in your family since you're no stranger to adversity. You've made headlines in recent years because of an ordeal you're going through with the U.S. Marine Corps. Can you share a brief summary of that and how the experience has impacted you? Sure. So I'm going to refrain from commenting directly on the USMC situation due to the ongoing legal nature. But that said, and, and those who are, who are closest to me, they certainly know that this experience, this ordeal, has impacted me in profound ways, even more so than my combat experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, which were, which were beyond formative. And without question, the ordeal has been the most challenging battle that I've faced or have fought to date in life. It's been particularly complex in the sense that there's a political component, there's a legal, media, tactical component, and most significantly, there's also kind of a moral a moral component at play. Now, if you had told me, Patty, if you had told me 10 years ago that at some point I would go to battle with my own tribe on the national stage, I would tell you that you were, 
you were crazy. But that's precisely where I've been the, the past several years. You know, I referenced earlier that the battles in, in Fallujah, in Afghanistan, um, where I was fortunate enough to study under Jim Roussel. But th- this battle is very different than those types of battles. But I, I don't think it's any less important. It's certainly more uncomfortable, which I think is saying something in light of the places that I've been. But I think it's it's a really important battle and one that has far-reaching effects that will likely shape policy for service members who find themselves making life-and-death decisions in future campaigns. And I think that that's what motivates me to continue. I can only speculate, but much of the battle is going to be decided probably in federal court Mm-hmm. Right, because there, there's a legal component. But I think even more important than the legal aspect is the the moral aspect that's at play. Because ultimately, it asks the question of what is of what is right. And I'm a big believer in institutions. I mean, I, I love the New York City Fire Department. You know, obviously, kind of battling the Marine Corps. But I, no one's more proud and loves the Marine Corps more than me. I believe in institutions. I I love institutions. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes institutions place their interest and image above their explicit mission and the welfare of their people. And uh, the consequences of that are catastrophic. And I think that awareness, which came to me probably later in life than I would wish in retrospect, that awareness is uh, just knowing that is, is at times harsh, but I think it all allows us to be better leaders, right? Particularly knowing that, you know, where, where bureaucracies left to their own devices sometimes sometimes can go. And we're all, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of those those sorts of things. Yeah, I guess I guess that's that's uh So that brings in a us nutshell. back that's, yeah. that's the marine the marine ordeal. But that brings us back to human performance. So based on your experiences and I'm sure we could talk about a lot of things here, but based sure. on your experiences, what have you learned about optimizing human performance at the individual level? Sure. At the individual level, I would say kind of central to this this endeavor to optimize human performance, I would say developing your instincts and then learning to trust those instincts. And that sounds really simple or it almost sounds cliche, but the science informs us that's really, really difficult. And I think if we're honest with ourselves in retrospect about our, our previous experiences, it, it kind of reinforces that. And I think oftentimes we take knowledge and understanding and judgment, and we kind of throw them into the same bucket and we look at them synonymously. Knowledge is obviously critical, right? Understanding your environment, understanding what you need to do tactically, technically, fundamentally in your environment to, to succeed is how your environment behaves, how it reacts is, is critical. But knowledge alone isn't, isn't enough, right? And then there's, there's understanding. And ideally, that understanding is kind of a product of experience, like re- real hand experience. And if you're in an environment where you're, where you're competing frequently enough that you're able to gain experience and ultimately building your, your sense of understanding, then in theory, your judgment, right, your, your ability to make good sound decisions in a very short, sometimes time span, should be in, enhanced. And ultimately, you know, one of the things that I think that the scientists have really, that we've partnered with, have really reinforced is that we don't make decisions in a high-stress situation nearly as deliberately or analytically or as methodically as we'd like to. It's not like shopping for a car. Many of the decisions that we make, we kind of just arrived at those decisions without working through an analytical or, or a deliberate model. Even the best even the best leaders. So that tells us that our, that our instincts then and our intuition is absolutely critical and developing the skills to kind of trust those instincts in that moment, just trusting your instincts so that you're more likely to act than to be paralyzed by everything that you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're thinking about upstairs in terms of the consequences, uh, the outcomes, like things that we don't control in that moment, just trusting 
just trusting your instincts. Oftentimes, optimal performers at the, at the highest levels, the reasons that they struggle is because they tend to overthink. Mm. Right? If you think, you know, if you look at kind of performance as a cycle, one of the things we talk about leadership under fire and the, and the MPI initiatives, we talk about the preparation phase, the execution phase, the reflection phase, and then the subsequent learning phase. It's somewhat counterintuitive, but that execution phase, you should be actually thinking least during that phase, if you spend enough time thinking about your performance during the preparation phase and then kind of analyzing it during the reflection phase that facilitates meaningful learning, then the execution phase, you're just trusting your, you're trusting your instincts. So then what have you learned about optimizing human performance at the team level or the organizational level? One of the lessons I've learned about human performance at the team and organizational level is that virtually everyone is different mentally. <laughs> probably even more so mentally than physically, particularly at the highest levels of, of performance, whether it be your, your top units in the FDNY, the military, or your most elite athletic teams. But in many instances, and I'm going to kind of reference the, the fire service here, in many instances, our tactics assume that human behavior is both uniform and a constant. And we also sometimes assume that folks have the capacity to perform more advanced tactics and techniques when the stakes are higher. Both are really problematic assumptions. The fact is that human behavior is incredibly complex and unpredictable, particularly in a high-stress or highly competitive situation. And if I might use a fire service analogy that will probably resonate with some of the audience, is that a fire company goes to a challenging fire and one guy behaves as if he's a fireproof building. One guy behaves as if he's ordinary construction, and one guy behaves as if they're a wood frame building. And each of these buildings present their own sorts of challenges because they each respond considerably different to heat and stress. And I'm not sure how effective that analogy is, but it's imperative to understand kind of who is good at withstanding what and when. There's kind of a situational and contextual component to all of this. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's a leadership endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this variation in human behavior is the product of freaking dozens, I don't know, probably hundreds of hundreds of variables dating back to your childhood, you know, your risk tolerance, your comfortability with uncertainty, intrinsic motivation, previous experience, etc. And this is true in, in every industry and endeavor. Training certainly seeks to optimize tactical performance, but the problem is that training rarely addresses the psychological and physiological aspects of performance. To some extent, like the fire service, the military, probably even sport, but we've historically assumed that if we give folks the technical skills, the fundamentals, proper equipment, ensure that they are physically fit and give them tactical rules that kind of govern their their actions, uh, that they will perform satisfactorily on game day to the extent that they accomplish the mission and reduce their vulnerability or susceptibility to risk. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us know that that's experientially not the case and that the chaos and uncertainty of the operational environment kind of coupled with the complexity of the human behavior suggests sometimes that the best solutions are not complicated. They're actually simple. And that's somewhat counterintuitive because we, we as humans, and I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this, we all tend to fall in love, right, with, with technology or look to technology to help us win, right, or reduce the complexity of our environment. And we also t- all tend to fall in love with complex plans. The problem is that these complex plans and technology really deliver as promised, particularly during our most complex, challenging operations where the consequences of success or, more importantly, probably failure are are severe. One final thought as it relates to kind of team and organizational level behavior and performance. I think it's imperative that leadership at the team and organizational levels, that, that those leaders be fervent students of what I would probably broadly 
call uh, human factor science or, or human behavior. Because the fact is, if you want to lead and influence people in a highly competitive environment, you probably best have a clue of how your people behave in that type of environment, both anecdotally and to some extent scientifically. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we, we used to have this cliche in leadership under fire of making yourself hard to kill, which seeks to foster safety, right? Just kind of a different approach to fostering safety, but the intent is there, right? To facilitate the same sort of outcome. And what I've learned time and time again, I continue to learn every time I go to work that it's those soft skills that make you hard to kill. Everything ranging from a better understanding of performance psychology and cognitive function to emotional intelligence, right? That sounds silly that a U.S. Marine combat leader would say emotional intelligence is significant in a highly competitive environment, but I think that that's uh, certainly the case. So now in terms of leadership, are there certain qualities in leaders that you seek to emulate, and why did you decide on those qualities? Yeah, there's certainly some, some qualities and attributes that I seek to emulate on a somewhat consistent and, and regular basis. I've been really blessed to have worked for and, and with some really terrific leaders, both in the military and in the New York City Fire Department. And there's a few traits that are, I wouldn't say universal, but traits or attributes that are consistent in, in virtually all of these leaders. One would be consistency, right? in the sense that the best leaders who I've worked for and I, I strive to emulate were consistent in, in how they carried themselves, how they conducted business, how they treated people. They were largely the same away from work as they were at work. At work, in a training setting or day-to-day, they largely carried themselves like they did at a fire, like it wasn't like their personality changed. That sense of consistency is favorable. They tend to favor trust over control, and it's relatively easy to do so in conversation or in planning, but it's really challenging to do so in a real-world setting. And when I think of these, the leaders that I seek to emulate, most of them had been tested at virtually every level. Mm-hmm as they ascended the ranks. And those experiences kind of reinforced this notion that, generally speaking, the person at the leading edge of the problem set probably has the best answer. Not necessarily the person outside the fire building or in combat, the person who's remote at a a command post. But that level of trust over control. These guys and gals are uh, uncomfortable with uncertainty. And kind of their experiences taught them time and time again that we rarely have the answers to the test. And the answers to the last test won't necessarily work for the next test. And that when I think about how these folks kind of prepared, they were maniacal about preparation, both individually and collectively. But at the end of the day, recognize that uncertainty pervades, right, particularly in an operational or a highly competitive environment. And they viewed that uncertainty as an obstacle to navigate rather than a roadblock to action. Probably one or two other traits Oh, never the smartest guy in the room. When I think of the leaders that I seek to emulate, they never had to be the smartest guy in the room, nor did they necessarily want to be the smartest guy in the room. And they recognized that in many instances, the smartest guy or gal in the room probably isn't the person with the bird or the stars on their collar or or the, the most time on the job. And, um, you know, several decades into their career, I think of these combat leaders, guys like Colonel Martin Wetterauer, chiefs like Chief Tom Richardson, you know, folks that I hold in, in the highest regard that I seek to emulate, despite their extensive operational experience, they still embrace meta-knowledge, right? In the sense that they're confident about what they know, they're equally aware of what they don't know, and they also will freely admit that sometimes there are things that they don't know that they, they don't know, <laughs> And I think that that's, uh, that's consistent when I think of the leader, the, the best leaders. And, and last, I would just say, and this kind of comes back to kind of the core of the Elia philosophy, these guys are, they're humans, right? And 
equally significant. They're just, and this goes back to quiet professionalism. They're just regular guys. So some of the folks that I hold in the highest regard and I seek to emulate, despite their significant success or responsibility or their their rank, if you were to walk into a bar and meet them conversationally, when they introduce themselves to you, they would say, hi, I'm Tom, I'm a firefighter. Hi, I'm Martin, a Marine. An hour goes by, somebody comes over and says to you, now, separate conversations, say, oh, you met that guy? That guy's the, one of the highest-ranking chiefs. You, you would have no idea. Oh, you met the colonel? That guy's one of the most highly decorated Marines. Like, wow, I just thought it was just a regular. They never forgot where they came from. When you look back to when Leadership Under Fire started and compare it to where it is now, does anything stand out, pivot points, impact? We've definitely evolved in our, our thinking. We've definitely, I think, expanded the, the scope and reach of what it is we're trying to do. I mean, we, we started you know, looking to improve and advance the fire service tactically and technically, and I, I think we've, uh, we're seeking to do much more than, than that now. And I think our model is built more off of synthesis over analysis, where we're looking to build a more diverse team of, of thought leaders from a number of different industries and endeavors. I mean, if you had told me several years ago that we would be, have an optimizing human performance podcast that's recorded in lower Manhattan, I, I would have laughed. And yet here we sit today with our Starbucks coffee in lower Manhattan having a, a conversation in a um, recording studio. And the only thing more exciting than continuing to host LUF seminars, human performance courses, and leadership development courses is knowing that folks who are looking to prepare themselves and their organizations to navigate the physical, mental, emotional, and moral uh, challenges associated with, with leadership uh, can listen to a wide variety of guest performance leaders on this podcast. And, and listeners can listen in from around the, the globe. And I, I should also mention uh, how excited I am, Patty, that you're, you're hosting this podcast uh, though we might have gotten off to a rocky, um, rocky start a few years ago, I, I know of no one better suited to facilitate a, a candid, insightful conversation with guest performance leaders. And um, you know, as as the founder of Yale UF, we're, we're we're very blessed to have you on this team, and I think the li- listening audience is uh, is blessed to have you at the helm of this podcast. I'm really excited to see where you're going to go with it. I'm not sure. I have no idea. And, and actually, in this case, that's that's a good thing. I'm so happy we got that recorded. And then um, we ask every guest this question, and so you're no exception. In your words, what makes leadership under fire unique and important? I'm biased, right, in, in saying this, given that I, I, am, I am the founder uh, of, of Leadership Under Fire. The, the caliber of folks involved. The team is very diverse in terms of age. We have folks who contribute over 23 years of age, a year out of college, to folks well into their late 70s, some of our mentors. Folks in a number of different uh, industries that are, some that are lucrative, some that are less less than lucrative. We have folks with PhDs and we have folks with high school diplomas. But to a T, every single person on the team has spent their life professionally and personally uh, upholding the values and, and the philosophy of, of leadership under fire. The only thing better than influencing change or, or folks, your subordinates, is just modeling that behavior and I think when you think of the hierarchy, the, the fundamental, the, the physical, the mental, and, and the moral, I think to have an organization that is committed to helping leaders to prepare, not only for the physical and tactical dilemmas, but those mental and moral dilemmas, I think that, that at the end of the day, it leaves all of us better individually and collectively and as a society. What do you think the future holds for Leadership Under Fire? The future? I honestly have no idea. So one of the things we learned about human performance, and I don't think firefighters are any different than stockbrokers, hedge fund managers, or political analysts, is that none of us know what the future holds. But I know that regardless of what the future holds, that I want to be surrounded by the caliber of leaders and the performers that we have on the LUF team and in the larger LUF network. 
particularly when things go wrong or sideways. And they, they will at, at some point. These are precisely the kinds of folks that I want to be surrounded by. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for making the time to be here today. You're welcome back anytime to go over anything we might have missed. Thank you, Patty. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire, optimizing human performance podcast listeners, can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF, more at ConwayShield.com. Hey, listeners, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. The Leadership Under Fire team is excited to share that the 2019 National Optimizing Human Performance Summit will take place in Annapolis, Maryland, March 29th through 30th. This event, aimed at building your anchor, will explore resilience at the individual, team, and organizational levels, as well as from the tactical, mental, and moral perspectives. Summit speakers and panelists include... Jen Baker, Senior Associate Athletics Director at John Hopkins University, Brendan Cauley of the FDNY, Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, the authors of the New York Times bestseller Indianapolis, former U.S. Navy SEAL and functional fitness trainer Stu Smith, and more. Participants will collaborate in small groups with LUF advisors, plus have a chance to participate in a functional fitness workout. Registration is limited, so act fast. For more information, visit our website or email contact at leadershipunderfire.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.